Good morning. Welcome here again as we meet around God's Word. And uh, yeah, I have a story. As uh, Pastor Rogers allocated different uh, pieces of scriptures of Nehemiah to us, I got uh, the last week's passage initially, which I was really excited about. The people um, finished the wall and uh, they celebrated, they wanted to hear from God, and um, Nehemiah said not to weep, but because the joy of the Lord is their strength. And then because of my schedule, I had to change it, and I looked at my section, I had to do the Feast of Booths, and I go, what can I do with that? (laughs) But praise God, he has revealed to me that even through this passage, the whole gospel is in is revealed in in this for us. So um, let's read Nehemiah 8 from uh, verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all of the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, There was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So we see now, after the wall was built in Jerusalem, they regained their sense of identity as a nation. They had safety. Uh, They were able to go to the temple. They just experienced working together for 52 days for an amazing accomplishment of rebuilding this wall. And that created in them a hunger to know this God who so helped them. After many years of disobedience and sinfulness and rebellion, they were ready to know this God again. And therefore they asked priest Ezra to read from this book of the law. And hearing the word of God, they were convicted of their sinfulness and their disobedience. And they were saddened by it. Their reaction was to weep. But... Nehemiah said, this day is holy because you've turned to God again and it's time to celebrate, stop weeping and rejoice because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Encouraged by this experience of being strengthened by the Lord, the leaders wanted to also know more about this God. So we read in verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people and with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. 
So the leaders didn't wait very long. The second day, they went uh, to Ezra to be taught and to listen to the reading of the book of the law. And as they were studying this, it was revealed to them that at that very time, they were supposed to keep the law, the, the feast of the, the tabernacles, or feast of booths, uh, or they call it the feast of the seventh month. And this uh, was usually the end of the um, harvest time where they were able to celebrate. But in verse 14, we said, And they found it written the law that the Lord had commanded Moses, by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches and of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it's written. And immediately the leaders responded and informed the people to do this. And uh, the people went out and, and to get all these branches. And verse 16 we read, So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And we see the whole nation did that, not a few people that decided that's a good idea. They were unified again by, by being obedient to God. And in verse 17 it said, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. So we see that because the people's rebellion and disobedience, some time of Joshua when they brought him into the promised land, instead of continuing to celebrate this, they have sinned, walked away from God, and has stopped uh, celebrating this feast. In spite of that, they are here and they want to celebrate this feast, which is usually a feast of harvest, but they might not have much of a harvest since they were building walls, but there still was a lot to celebrate and be thankful for. We say, read again verse 18, and there was very great rejoicing, and day by day from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So every day, the people were coming together and listening to the word of God, and they delighted in it, and they rejoiced in it. And as we just going back to how this feast was established or put in place, God brought the Israelites through taking them out of Egypt and slavery, taking them 40 years through the desert, uh, where they slept in every night in a tent, made of different things, um, and they were totally exposed to the elements, to wild animals, to enemies, but they've trusted in God to protect them. And this is a, supposed to be a celebration of that. We read in Deuteronomy 11:1, 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, Consider the discipline of the Lord your God, 
the greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord destroyed them this day, and he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, sons of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of Israel. For your eyes have seen all the work of the Lord, which he did. So he said, just reminded them of all these wonderful things God has done for them. And he also war- warns them that the people that disobeyed him had a poor outcome. And he wanted them to remember these things, not just for his sake, but mostly for their sake, for their protection, for their pr- prosperity as they follow the Lord. And we go on in Deuteronomy 11.8, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment which I commanded you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give, them, to, give to them and your offspring a land flowing of milk and honey. He again says, I have big promises for you. I want you to live in this land flowing of milk of honey, but there are some preconditions. He wants you to study the word, to know the words of the Lord, and to, uh, and, and to teach it to their children. Verse 18, it says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart, in your soul, and you shall bring them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in the house, when you are walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of the Lord. The Lord swore to your fathers and give it to them as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment, that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out these nations before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. So again, we see it should just not be uh, following God. It's not a Sunday thing. It's something that being practiced in your home. You should teach it to your kids. There should be evidence in your house that, you know, Bibles or verses or the way people behave, uh, that's the only way that the next generation will be able to walk in the blessing of God. But these people, in spite of all these benefits, chose not to continue with, uh, with walking with God, and they didn't teach their children, and they experienced the consequences. Verse 26 says, See, I... I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of your God, but turn away from the way that I'm commanding you today and go after gods that you have not known. And then God, through Moses, institute rules and regulations regarding food and tithing 
the sabbatical years, and he also instituted the three feasts, the feast of the Passover, which we're looking forward as we now do Easter, the feast of weeks, and then the feast of booths. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16, 13, you shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and the wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year all your maids shall appear before the Lord your God and at the place where he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, and Feast of Booths. You shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings of the Lord your God that he has given you. So again, we see the Feast of Booths were instituted to be in the fall after harvest, where people had time to celebrate and and all the produce that they have uh, gathered that God has blessed them with. And he says everyone should bring according to their ability. The Feast of Booths reminded the Israelites that they had to trust in God when they lived in their feeble housing, and, uh, and they were totally dependent on God. It was also a celebration of God's goodness and his, and his pr uh, providing for them. And now they were able to celebrate the rest restoration of Jerusalem. The nation has neglected to celebrate this feast in the past because they walked away from God and was worshipping foreign gods. That is why Jerusalem was destroyed. That's why they were in captivity. But God is giving them a second chance, or a third, or a fourth, because they have returned to God and is, and is learning more about this God. Initially, like we see in the beginning, people made their own booths and they lived in their backyard, on their roofs, in the public plains at the, uh, at the temple. But over time, the feast became a more of a um, focus on, on the temple itself. And the feast was also called Sukkot. And um, there were a lot of people brought different sacrifices and things to eat. And there were 70 bulls sacrificed during this feast. Um, the sages of the Talmud says they likened the 70 bulls to the 70 nations of the world at the time. And the daily decrease in the number of bulls, the weakening of the nations around that could harm Israel. And uh, so the first day, seven, 13 bulls were sacrificed and then down to the seventh day, seven bulls. And if you calculate, that comes to 70 bulls. That, that, those are a lot of bulls. <laughs> I was concerned since having farm background, without a rifle, how do you sacrifice a bull? But they must have had a way of doing it. And then this festival was full of periods of prayer and, and ceremonies. Some of the ceremonies that they celebrate was... Uh, going around the altar, beating the floor with willow branches, indicating the punishment of the ancestors for disobeying, the God, uh, disobeying God. 
And another was uh, circling the altar seven times and remembering the delivery of Jericho to them. The most important ceremony was the filling of the golden jar that was um, from the water from the pool of Shiloh or Siloam, which is um, from the natural spring that came out of Mount Moriah that is under Jerusalem below the temple, and it, they would dammed it up in, in a pool. And that is also where Jesus, after um, healing the man's uh, eyes that were born blind, said to go and wash his, his, uh, his eyes. So everyone of this festival gathered around this pool, and then the priest would uh, take a golden jar and fill it with this water, and then there would be a ceremony going through the, the water gate, and apparently that's why that's named that way. And as the procession goes through the water gate, the trumpets blew, and to celebrate the fulfillment of the verse in Isaiah 12, verse 3, you shall draw water in joy from the springs of salvation. After that, they poured it on the altar as a cleansing. They call it libation of the altar. And then right through the festival, they, they recited the halal prayer. And the halal prayer um, was, was, was sing, sang in a spirit of joy and celebration. And what it is, is a collection of songs of thanksgiving and praise to the Almighty. And it's from Psalms. 113 to 118. And then 100, Psalm 118, verse 22, it's, uh, we read part of that psalm, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So we can see that the people expecting this coming Messiah, the stone the builders rejected become the cornerstone, and also referring to the joy of you shall draw water in the joy of the springs of salvation. Uh, and then we just see how they miss him when he actually does come. And we also read then in John 7 verse 1 that Jesus did go to this Feast of Booths at the end of his ministry. John 7 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because of the Jews who were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths were, was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave you and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, you show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that it works, its works are evil. You will go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So we see here even uh, Jesus' brothers and family did not receive him as the cornerstone, as the Messiah. And he went up in the temple to, to preach without being announced, to help the people understand who he was and why he came. And then in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, which is the day of solemn remembrance, Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit has not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. So clearly we see that Jesus knew the symbolism of, of, of all this. And um, we know that the whole Old Testament is pointing eventually to Jesus. And all these things that they went through pointing to Jesus, even if they didn't understand it. And then Jesus taps into um, what is local. They're living in an arid country uh, which, where water is um, very prized and very valuable. And people often go uh, thirsty and they know that desperate feeling of being thirsty and need to have uh, their thirst, thirst quenched. And Jesus says, I have that quenching of your, your thirst in, in a spiritual way, in a way that you need more than just regular water. Um, and we're looking back at this uh, Isaiah 12, verse 3, you shall draw water in the joy, water and joy from the springs of salvation. We know that Jesus is the spring of salvation and our only Savior. And he also, to help us understand that he, he, he brings it up again when he speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus says in John 4, 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, referring to the, the well water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to the eternal life. So right through the history of, of uh, the Israelites uh, pointing to uh, Jesus, we um, have this promise that there will be uh, salvation and there will be a quenching of our thirst for righteousness, for forgiveness of sins, and uh, that's what he tells the Samaritan woman. And when Jesus makes a promise, it always comes true. And he promised that we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we will be replenished and streams of living water will also flow from us so it will be able to quench the thirst of others. In 2 Corinthians 1.19, we read, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find a yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We, we know, and that's the proof that, that we've accepted Jesus and Jesus come in our lives when we are filled with his Holy Spirit there should be a change. Instead of having a, a dry well, there should be springs of water, uh, springs of love, springs of sympathy and empathy and all the things that, that Jesus has should be coming out of our lives. Jesus also told the parable of the bad tenants in the vineyard. 
that, um, if you remember, that they treated the tenants badly, and when he sent the son, they killed him as a, as a reference to himself. And in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And that's, as again, comes right from, from the Old Testament and from this festival and from Psalm 118, that this cornerstone was, was coming and they expected him, but because he didn't, um, he didn't look like the Messiah they expected. They didn't, didn't embrace him. And they will face those consequences. We know that during the history, as we see the Old Testament, Nehemiah, everywhere, it points to Jesus as our Redeemer, as our cornerstone, and eventually as our Savior in heaven. Everything goes through earth to eternal life, being with God in heaven. And just this whole symbolism that I found with um, the river coming out of Mount Moriah under the temple of God in Jerusalem, we see something, again, similar as if you read Revelation 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every, every month. And the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bond service will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no longer any night, and they will not have need of light or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is um, a beautiful thing to look forward to as, you know, being part of God's kingdom, sitting with him, and this river of water that are feeding the trees of, of life that brings its fruit, and there'll be nothing that we'll be um, needing other than being with Jesus. We won't even need the sun to warm us up or or to give us light, because Jesus will be that. And we, we also know that um, we are in, in exile as well. Our real home is in heaven, but we live on earth at the moment, and uh, we will eventually... Um, experience the fullness of what that means. Just looking at what we learned from what we read already, and um, if we look at the Bible, when Jesus, when the Israelites went through the desert, and 
there was a cloud during the day and light at nighttime, and all the provisions of food with a manna and water from a rock. We read that that angel of the Lord was Jesus. He is always there, has been as our salvation, and he's still there for us now. We focus on being in a, in a temporary housing like a tent, that God is our security. If we rely on our well-built houses, our financial well-being, our good jobs, our good medical system, a reasonably um, law-abiding society, you know, those things uh, can go away in a, in a moment. We even seen a lot of things we took for normal. Um, associating with friends, coming to church, suddenly there's a pandemic and things change. And we don't know what lies ahead of us. It could be a pandemic, it could be something else, only God knows. But as long as we don't trust in the temporary things, but we trust in God, then we will be... Uh, be okay, whatever happens. Um, I know Pastor Roger mentioned that, you know, sometimes um, we might have to experience this, and some of us have. If you go out in the wilderness and you put your little tent up, um, it's not much protection from whatever might want to come inside the tent. And, you know, you realize again that the things that we have as protection, you know, is but flimsy. And the only real protection and only thing we can really trust in is, is God. We also read here that the Israelites wanted to study the word of God and get insight and really know who he was. And we see in Deuteronomy that God says through Moses that you need to spend time, you need to learn the word of God, you need to get insight for your life, and you need to be the leader in your house for helping your children to know Jesus and demonstrate how a Christian should live and walk. If we don't, we see that children will wander away in the desert of sinfulness and get into a lot of trouble, and we know that the end of sinfulness is eternal death, and we want all our children uh, to be with, with Jesus and be with us when we end up there one day. But fortunately, as we study the Bible, God will reveal our sinfulness, and it must be right to grieve and repent and turn away, but we know that Jesus already has paid for our sin and set us free. And just like Nehemiah told them, don't weep anymore. You can rejoice in the, with the joy. The strength of the Lord is your joy. In Romans 6.23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God has given us salvation, and we need to rejoice in that. And I just happened to read in, in Philippians 4 again about rejoicing. It's be something that should should be a mark of us as Christians. We're often portrayed by the community as long-faced people that don't want to have fun, and um, you know we just complain about things. But it's not really who we are. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many people will give everything they have to have joy, that they can rejoice every day, that their sins are forgiven, that um, they don't need to be anxious, but that God will take care of it when they bring it to him. And um, this peace that surpasses all understanding, everyone wants to have, but people look in the wrong places. So we need to honor God and get to know him by spending time with him. We talk about over and over. You need to spend time with God and his word, not just reading, but also listening. As you pray, allow him to speak into your life. And then we come to this issue about the stumbling block or the cornerstone. Jesus will either be your biggest obstacle or your biggest treasure. And you know, that decision is with us and with the working of the Holy Spirit to bring us to a point to acknowledge that. If we build our lives on him and on the Bible, we will have joy. If not, we will have spiritual death. 1 Peter 2, 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then we read in Ephesians 2, 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a wonderful picture we have here that all this, the Bible, plus of other Christians in this world, with Jesus as our cornerstone, is being built up as, as his body, as his temple, and what a wonderful uh, thing to be part of, of such a, the best organization in the universe. We all thirst for true peace and fulfillment, but it's only available in Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 said, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our eyes should be on heaven and on the things that are eternal. And we know that Jesus will come back and, and come and get us. And whatever ails you, whether you're missing a finger or bad knees or whatever is wrong, it will be all fixed and you'll be perfect and you have a glorious body like Jesus. God has made provision for, for us for salvation as we see right through the, the Bible or through history. And uh, if we accept Jesus Christ, we will receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. When we get Jesus in our lives and the Holy Spirit fill our lives, all our desires will be satisfied. And we'll be 
fulfilled in ourselves, but also able to share with those around us with, as the living water flows again from us. The choice is ours. God wants to do a miracle in your life, but you have to allow him. And I just remind us of our mission statement again, which, which confirms this, that we exist to passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for who you are. We're a weak people, and just like the Israelites, we're prone to sin and failure, disobedience. But thank you that you come back over and over again to remind us of your promises. And dear Lord, we pray that through your Holy Spirit that you will guide us and direct us and soften our hearts, that we firstly will surrender to you and accept you in our lives, and that we would take away the hindrances, that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit, so that we will be uh, able to quench the thirst of those around us. Dear Lord, we know we live in a, in, in a desert spiritually here, right in Poraburni, with many people uh, thirsty for, for you and for peace and for comfort and for eternal promises. And we know, dear Lord, we have it in you. Help us, dear Lord, as individuals and help us as a church to be able to uh, be those witnesses for you. In your name we pray. Amen.